Genesis chapter 37 with me. I'm going to do something that I don't think I've ever done before in my life. And I'm going to preach some messages that I've actually preached before somewhere else for the second time. I've been doing this for about 10 years, and I don't think I've ever done that before, which is kind of crazy. So please consider yourselves blessed, and not like you're getting leftovers rewarmed and served with some ketchup on top to hide the leftoverness of it. Um, I want to, by God's grace, Lord willing, speak through the life of Joseph, um, which I did last week when I was at the family camp for Gateway South. And I just can't get over this story. And so I'm getting new insights into it. I think daily, and I think that this might be an appropriate series of messages for us at Calvary Chapel. All right. Let's read Genesis chapter 37. These are the very words of God. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock of his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph, and Israel and Jacob are the same person, two names. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when the sons saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheep arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept a saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And he said to him, Go now, see, it is, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, He rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into a pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hands and restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. 
Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead and the camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. God, I pray that you just come. Father, uh, you have been working in your people for centuries and millennium. And so, Lord, I pray you would do your work again. God, you've given us this word, this, this awesome Bible that tells your story from your perspective so that we can know you and live with you, and please you and obey you. And I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts today. And Father, would you give me grace? Would you give my mind insight? Would you rule over my mouth? Help me to be a good servant of your word. And would you give uh, hungry and um, soft hearts to each person who hears this, even me? And would you help us to respond boldly with faith to what your word says in Jesus' name? And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is I just want to run through this story I'll make some comments about how I, I read it and how it's working, and then um, we will apply it to ourselves. So whenever you read in Genesis the line, these are the generations of so-and-so, um, it's like a new chapter heading. Genesis is 10 chapters long, and usually whoever's named, it's actually about their, their children. So this is the generations of Jacob, but it's actually about his kids. And if you remember, Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. God chose Abraham and called him out of where he lived to come to the promised land and said, I'm going to bless the entire world through your children. And Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau, and J- Jacob ended up with a bunch of wives because... Um, it's complicated, and a lot of children, and this is the story of the children. And Joseph is the firstborn of the wife he wanted to marry, of Rachel, who had been barren for years and years and years. And this story is going to focus mostly on Joseph, though not entirely. And so the story starts with a chapter from verse 1 through to 11, or a section that I call Everybody Loves Joseph. And it's meant to explain why everybody hates Joseph. And uh, essentially what's going on, you start off with Joseph, um, he's young, he's 17, and he 
brings a bad report to his father about what some of his brothers were doing, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, and they were kind of the servants of the wives that became wives in order to have more kids for the wives, if you remember that. And so it starts off with this bad report, and people argue about whether or not Joseph was being mean or Joseph was being vindictive or if he was being a brat. And you don't totally know, except what we do know about Joseph's story is that there's never a time in the entire story where Joseph either lies or is vindictive. Okay? His entire character is he's honest, and he's good at management, right? He's good at administration. And so as I read this, it's probably just Joseph being Joseph. He, he comes, to, he comes to the flock one day and his brothers are probably not doing a good job with the sheep as you might imagine Um, guys getting bored taking care of sheep all day I can just kind of imagine they're just standing there going I bet you I can hit that sheep over there with this here rock but you can't (laughs) see I told you I could do it hey that sheep isn't moving anymore you know that kind of thing and Joseph goes home and he's like "Um, they're, they're not really taking care of the sheep like they should But nobody likes it when you give a bad report about them, correct? Now, on top of this, Joseph was definitely a favored son of Jacob. And Jacob, sadly, he comes off as quite a self-centered person throughout this entire story. And this is probably part of it. But his father really loves Joseph because Joseph is the the long-awaited son from, from his wife that he had wanted to marry in the first place, and that all got messed up. And so Jacob shows his love for his son by making him this coat, which would have been really, really, really expensive. Like Nowadays, if you go to the store and they don't have the same shirt in five different colors, you just don't think they're trying. But back in those days, it was so expensive to try to dye clothing. So most people just had clothing the color of whatever the wool was when it was made. But to make a coat that was colored to start off with is a sign of wealth, but to make it multicolored is really going overboard and, and didn't really help the brothers with their whole jealousy issues. And so they hated him all the more. And then Joseph has these two dreams. He has a dream about um, all the brothers wheat bowing down to him, which is a prophetic dream. And if you can remember, what does Joseph end up doing for his life? His, his life calling. He rules over all the grain in the world during a time of famine. And so here's a prophetic picture of what he's going to do. He is actually going to become the Lord of the harvest, very physically. And everybody's going to be bowing down to him in terms of food. But they don't like this dream. And then he has another dream about his father, or sorry, about the sun and the moon and these 11 stars. And he has 11 brothers all bowing down to him. And in scripture, suns and moons and stars are often pictures of like political power. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, when, when God makes the sun and the moon and the stars, he, it says that he made them to rule over the, the sky, to rule over times and places. And so even just when they're created, there's this picture of rulership with them. And so here's this prophetic dream again about everybody he knows, and his father is like the ruler of the family and his wife beside him and the, the sons who are all children of Abraham and have destinies to be the... the heads of major tribes but they're all bowing down to joseph and there's this sense of like a governmental fulfillment of this well what does god do with joseph he makes him actually like the lord over the entire world eventually so these are two prophetic dreams that actually do come true how are they but how are they received by the people who hear about the dreams well not well 
by the time verse 11 happens, or verse 10, um, even the favoriting father is rebuking the son. So by the time you hit verse 11, nobody's really happy with Joseph anymore. Which is the setup for the whole problem with the pit. So the brothers are out there doing their thing. I'm not sure if Benjamin's there or not. He would have been younger than Joseph, so he might have been at home too. But at least all his older brothers are out with the flock. And Jacob sends Joseph out to bring a report. So they didn't have iPhones back then. They didn't have telephones back then. They didn't even... They, probably didn't have carrier pigeons or anything like that. So if you wanted to know something about someone you couldn't see, you had to send somebody to go and find out about it. But here's a picture. Joseph, even though he's the youngest, he's been elevated to the role of uh, middle, middle management. And so he's going in between and bringing reports, which is probably a sign, again, that he knows what he's doing and he's trustworthy with these tasks in maybe ways that the other brothers weren't. What's the other brother's character like? Are they totally trustworthy to be left on their own? Not really. Right? Because they're about to be a bunch of murderers. So, there you go. We are what we do. So, he's going to send, he sends Joseph out to go and check on the brothers. And there's this kind of moment of God's providence in here because Joseph actually can't find his brothers. And as soon as he's sent, um, it changes scenes to somebody finding Joseph wandering around in a field. Does anybody ever wander around in a field or get lost? I do. I, when I went to the family camp last Friday, I, I took the shortcut through Selkirk, which added half an hour to my trip. Um, so I sympathize, and even the best of us can get lost. But what had happened was that the flock had moved on, right? So when the flock's eaten everything, the shepherds move them on to where there's either more water or more grass to eat. And if God had just kind of left it, Joseph could have just not found them and then gone home. But instead, he runs into this guy who comes and says, what are you doing wandering around my field or whatever it is? And he says, I'm looking for my brothers. And the guy overheard that where they were planning on going. Oh, I heard them say we're going to go to Dothan. Oh, thanks, says Joseph. Thanks, but no thanks, eventually. But there's this coincidence that sets up this problem. And if God had wanted to, he could have just not let that overhearing happen or not let that chance meeting in the field happen. And so the brothers see Joseph coming from afar, and at first they just want to kill him. And it's really interesting that they they call him this dreamer and they're like, we're going to kill him and we're going to put an end to these dreams. That's the thing to remember that they're really focusing on. Why do we, we this guy in his dreams, let's just kill him and put an end to these dreams. But Reuben overheard it and he wants to rescue Joseph. And there, I, we're not totally sure why he wants to do this. Um, in part, it could be because he's the older brother. He's the eldest of all the brothers, and so he feels like he has this sense of responsibility. But it could also be that um, two chapters before, Reuben has slept with his father's wife that wasn't his mother. So Reuben slept with one of his father's wives, and his dad wasn't happy about it. So Reuben could be looking for a kind of back road way of trying to get back in his dad's good books. Because... Uh, it's hard to preach it sometimes because sleeping with your stepmom while your dad's still alive is not good. 
And so Reuben might be looking to go, ah, oh, if, I, if I come home with Joseph, I can, I'm the hero and I'm back in the good books. Right? So he says, don't kill him, just throw him in the pit. And Reuben wanders off or something like that because the next thing you know, Oh, sorry, um, before I get there, um, so they, th- they strip him of the robe and they throw him in the pit. And there's this really interesting line where it says the pit was empty and there's no water in it. And it says, then they sat down to eat, which just shows you how hard their hearts were. That their brother is in a pit right over there. We learn later on that he's crying and he's screaming and he's pleading with them not to do this. And they're just sitting down eating. How good and pleasant it is when brothers come together in unity, right? It is so good. They all, the kids finally agreed on something. Isn't this so good? It's like blood running down Joseph's face, down onto his bare chest. It's terrible. And then they see these caravans come by and judah please note who's doing this for later judah says what profit is it if we kill this guy why don't we just sell him because he's our own flesh and then we haven't done anything to him quote unquote square scare quotes and we'll make a profit so and the expectation would be that he would be sold into slavery and eventually be beat to death by somebody else in some far country and and you can just see their heart hey guys we're good people and we're the victims here, right? So let's not go overboard and actually like beat him to death or something like that. Let's just sell him into slavery because we're good people. And then our problem's gone. Joseph's a problem. Our problem's gone. And we get to go back to our happy lives. And, we, and we've maintained our goodness because we're good people. And we come home with 20 shekels of silver. And if you're not turning the shekels, what's the point? Right? Blech. They sell him into slavery. Off he goes to Egypt. Reuben shows up again. Apparently he's disappeared, and he sees that Joseph is gone, and so he's devastated. He doesn't know what to do. So they do go through with the plan of taking his multicolored robe and putting the goat's blood on it and bringing it home, and they don't directly lie to their father. They just said, look at this thing. They say, we found this thing. Is this your son's robe? What do you think happened? And they let Jacob fill in the details on his own without correcting him. And he says, oh, he must have died wandering around, which could happen. It's totally, it's like for us, like, oh, somebody got in a car accident. It's like, yeah, you're wandering around in a field by yourself and a lion jumps out and eats you. Totally not out of the realm of the possibility back then. Maybe it's more like us hitting a deer on the road. Fairly rare, but does happen. And then Jacob goes into official mourning and he's not going to be comforted by any of his sons. What a great story. Don't you love the Bible? I'm encouraged. Why is this story important? And why why spend time here? Why not just jump into something good? Well, I think that the story of Joseph in Genesis is the story where God really starts to take the fight to his spiritual enemy, Satan. 
This is where God takes off the kid gloves and he puts on the wrap your hands in cloth and dip it in glue and then bathe it in glass shards, pit fighter with the enemy. And he's going to show his sovereignty and his power over this family's sin and fallenness and bring about an impossible restoration by the time it's over. And so this is why it's important. This is where God God goes uh, berserker on the spiritual forces of darkness in the book of Genesis. And I want to paint the picture. I want to I help you see what I see in this, okay? So if you remember, going all the way back to the book, the beginning, Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent shows up and he tempts the woman and deceives the woman and she takes the fruit and then Adam and Eve together eat the fruit and they fall and when God shows up and he does his interrogation and finds out what happens, he begins to speak the consequences of their rebellion over the serpent and the woman and the man. And he says this to the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. This is 3 verse 14. And above all the beasts of the field and on your belly you shall go. Meaning you're going to live in a state of defeat. And the dust you shall eat, also a picture of defeat, all the days of your life. And then God says this in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so right after, in the fresh moments of the world being ruined by human sin, human beings were made in God's image and given authority to rule over all of creation. And so when humanity went down, all of creation went down with it, including the curse that everyone should die. Do people still die? Okay, yes, so things aren't all the way fixed yet. Amen? That's how do you know things aren't right? Well, the last funeral you went to. Because the world wasn't made to be like that as it was first made. The, The garden was surrounding the tree of life, and we were meant to just eat that tree of life, which is submission to God and submission to his word and coming under his authority. And if there had never been an eating of the fruit, um, I don't know what we'd be wearing for clothes, but it would be a whole different existence, that's for sure. But in those fresh moments after the fall, God looks at the serpent and says, I am going to make war between you and the woman. That's what enmity means. I'm going to, right now, she thought you were her ally and her rescuer. She thought you were telling her the truth, and that's why she rebelled against me. Now I am going to make war between your offspring and her offspring. And this is a spiritual picture. It's not like human beings versus snakes, though those things are gross, and you can kill as many of them as you want, as far as I'm concerned. Um, no, whenever somebody sees a snake on the endangered species list, nobody cares. Nobody gives a care at all. Nobody even begins to, like, yes, please, and, and go ahead right now. Um, but it's a spiritual idea. There are going to be descendants that come out of the woman who are going to be um, people of faith, and there are going to be descendants that are human descendants that are going to bear the image of the snake. They're going to be his seed. They're going to think like him, act like him, feel like him, be motivated like him. And this is war. God declares total war against the serpent, and he's going to use offspring to fight this fight. Are you with me so far? Okay. And so in this war, in this story of Joseph, God 
takes the people of God, which is Jacob's family. This is like all the people who are living under the blessing of Abraham right now. This is the people of God, and he takes them right into the enemy's camp to defeat the enemy. And this is what I mean. When the serpent tempted Eve, he managed, even though she was living in paradise, to make her jealous for something God had not given her. She has the perfect marriage with the perfect place to live. She's the most beautiful woman in the world. They, they essentially are living in the place where we pay thousands of dollars to go on vacation. Their job is just to like train animals and eat good food. That's all their job. They're living in paradise. And the one thing they weren't allowed to do was to try to be God themselves. That's what the tree of the knowledge of good, good and evil was about. Are you going to be the one that decides right and wrong? Are you the God of the universe? Do you walk around deciding who lives and dies? And God said, that's not your job. That's my job. And the serpent shows up and says, see, God doesn't love you. He's keeping something from, the, from you. Something you need. Something you'd be better off with. See, see, you can't trust God. You need this. You need this. You need to eat this tree. You, tree. you do. You need to. Because without it, you're not going to be all that you could be. All Your life's going to be messed up. You're, you're not going to be able to have everything you want. And so even though she's living, she like literally is in paradise, she gets a covetous heart. And she envies God, his godness. And she eats the fruit. This is the first sin. And sin isn't just something that kind of like is a gray cloud out there, like a proton field or something like that. It was literally birthed into the world a specific way. And after that envy, jealousy, covetousness of God's godness got sin into the world, that has been the enemy's fruitful way of ruling over people after that, okay? So... Cain and Abel are the next, they're the kids. The first generation of seed. And Abel gives God the best of his uh, flock and God gives him a, a good response in worship and Cain keeps the best for himself and just gives God some stuff and Abel's offerings accepted and Cain's isn't. And what does Cain do? He gets jealous. He envies. He would rather live in a world without Abel than to live in a world where Abel has done something better than him. Even though God shows up to Cain and talks to him and says, hey, we can fix this. Cain doesn't want it. He'd rather be envious. He'd rather be jealous. Because that's the imprint of the serpent on his seed. Envy, jealousy, and then rejecting God's will and rejecting God's plan in order to attack people instead of sin. Okay, so how does this have to do with Joseph? God creates this scenario with Joseph where it is the most maximized potential for jealousy that I could think of. So here's this favored son out of these 12 sons. Joseph, the one that that dad loves the most, including buying him all this fancy clothes to wear in front of the other sons. Joseph, who's probably the smartest son in the room. That's why he's the boss. Don't you hate the smart one in your family? You're just that guy, that's the smart one. Spend every year of high school going to all your new teachers and they keep asking you if you're as smart as your older brother who got 101% as his average every year, graduated from university with a 4.1 average, which is physically impossible because 4.0 is the top. And every day, are you, no, I'm not as smart as my brother. Never will be. 
Thanks for asking. You're a very thoughtful teacher. (laughs) Joseph's the favored one, and he's good at life. And they hate him. And what's God's response? He's going to double down. Oh yeah, guys, you know this brother you hate? By the way, you're all going to bow down to him. Oh yeah, family, you know this exalted brother that you already don't like? All of you are going to bow down to him. In fact, this favored brother that you already are jealous of and envious of and wish that he weren't here, I'm going to make him the king of the entire world, except for Pharaoh, who's on an extended vacation. God takes the people of God to the place where envy and jealousy and hatred over these things is at its very worst because he says, oh yeah, you hate this guy because of how people treat him? Just wait until you see how I treat him. When the brothers are at the pit and they want to kill Joseph, is it over the robe? It's over the dreams. It's over the dreams. It's over... Look... We're sick of you, Joseph, and the one thing we will not accept is that God would put you over us. And this is the crazy thing, okay? you got these two dreams about Joseph being exalted. How do people, is it just natural people, you have a dream, and then you have to be jealous? No, because a few chapters later, somebody else has two dreams. Who is it? It's Pharaoh. He has two dreams about the famines that's coming, right? First it's the corn, and it gets all blighted, and then it's the cattle, and it gets all blighted, and... Unlike God's people who totally understood the dreams, he doesn't know the dreams. He can't figure it out. And so he hears about Joseph and he pulls Joseph out of the prison. And then the next day he's interpreting these dreams or whatever it is. And Pharaoh hears about these dreams. And even though it's just this like Hebrew and they don't like Hebrews, they won't eat with them. You learn later on in the story, they won't even share a meal with them. And this guy was a prisoner in his own prison like a few hours ago, and Joseph says, this is the meaning of the dreams, and you should probably start saving some grain. And Pharaoh's response is, complete humility. Whoa, whoa, sounds like you really know what you're talking about. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make you in charge of uh, my house and my country. You're in charge of everybody. Everybody from now on is going to do whatever you say, and you just do your due because it's pretty obvious God's with you. And I'm just, I'm just going to sit on my throne, and other than that, you do it. So it is possible to just be humble. When God's talking, the pagan king, who, who actually probably thought he was half God, just absolutely just like, oh, God's talking. Okay, we're going to do what he says. Even though it means I'm pretty much just handing over my kingdom to you, Joseph. Do a good job. Let me know if you need any help. But here's my signet ring. Here's my second chariot. Here's some more clothes that'll make you look good. It's supposed to feel like Joseph at the beginning. So it's just so ironic that the, that the children of Abraham... Pharaoh didn't get the dreams. They did get the dreams. But Pharaoh did respond well to the dreams, and they responded so badly to the dreams. And this is the problem, is that when we're uh, discontent and subject to envy, um, we get offended at God's word. Because these dreams were God's word. They didn't have a Bible back then. They didn't have written stories. They might have had something written down, but the Bible doesn't tell us. They just had like the promises of Abraham's and the story of their family. So when these dreams came to Joseph, and there were two of them, which meant that it was going to happen, this was the word of God to the people of God. This was the word of God. This was God's communication to Jacob's children. 
And just like Eve back in the day, they, they knew God's word, but what they were coveting was more important than obeying God's word, and so they rejected God's word. And this is the enemy's camp. This is the enemy's tactic. This is the enemy's plan. And God is, through those dreams, making it as bad as possible for everybody else. He wants to bring them into a place of them seeing that their, their envy is completely out of control and their jealousy is completely out of control so that when he saves them through Joseph, they will have nothing to do but be humble and contrite which is what God wants out of his people. All he needs is a humble people who will take him at his word. That's all God wants, is a humble people who will trust him and take him at his word. You can also see how God is like taking the fight to the enemy's camp, taking the fight to the seat of the serpent, by what he does with a deception. So the snake works by deception, right? He deceives the woman with a half-truth, and she eats. And there's lots of deceptions in the book of Genesis um, that aren't good, right? So just a few. Jacob deceived his dad, Isaac, in order to get the blessing by putting on clothes. Anybody remember anything about clothes in the story we're talking about? He puts on Esau's clothes and pretends to be Esau and goes in there and gets the blessing. And then when it's revealed that the deceptions happened, what's the response? Well, Esau wants to kill him. He's just so angry, he wants to kill him. A little bit later, Jacob is has run away from home because he doesn't want to get killed. And he's at Laban's house, his uncle Laban's house, and he wants to marry Rachel. And he works seven years for Rachel. And during the wedding night, uh, Rachel is not the one inside the bridal chamber. It's, they wake up in the morning and it's Leah. It's a deception. It's another deception. Laban just wants to control Jacob and get his hooks in him and make him work for another seven years and, and just keep him and manipulate and be in control. And so he deceives him. And what's the response? Everybody happy? No. Everyone's mad. And the sisters fight, and Jacob fights, and they all fight. And eventually, Jacob runs away with all his wives and children. And Laban gets, feels deceived. And Laban hears about it, and he chases after them. And when they get together, how's Laban feel? Happy? No, Laban's ripping mad. He's getting ready to kill those guys, except that God had showed up in the night before and told him, if you touch these guys, you're dead. So there's all these stories of like deceptions and then curse and deceptions and then anger and deceptions and fighting and deceptions and terrible. And then this deception with Jacob from his sons is probably the grossest one in the Bible because it's like this weird reversal of the kindness of God in the Garden of Eden. And this is what I mean. When Adam and Eve were getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden, do you remember they had put some leaves on their private parts to cover themselves, a sign of their shame. And so they cover themselves with leaves. And in an act of mercy, the Bible says that God clothed them with skins, with animal skins before he sent them out. Because leaves don't, what's what's a leaf going to do? So he makes them some leather clothing and sends them out, which means that an animal had to die for them to be clothed. Does that make sense? He, he, He killed an animal... He made some coverings out of the skins. He put it on them in mercy, and then he sent them out. And here we have this deception where these brothers are taking clothing, 
and covering with animal skins and bringing it to a father, not to bring mercy and not because of grace, but to hide their sin. Okay? And God has said, you can, animals can be sacrificed to put sin away. But these guys sacrificed an animal to hide their sin so they never had to deal with it. And then to bring to someone a covering. They stripped their brother naked and killed an animal to hide their sin instead of what God did where an animal died to cover sinners in a merciful way. So this is like this deception that just turns God's mercy from from the Garden of Eden right inside out. It's so gross that a goat had to die so that these murderous, brother-enslaving, malcontents who are envious about their brother's uh, good things that happened to him and God's grace in his life so that they wouldn't have to deal with their junk. So gross. And that's on purpose. Because God is setting up another deception. Do you remember what happens near the end of Joseph's life when he's like the king of Egypt and he looks like an Egyptian and he sounds like an Egyptian because he's learned Egyptian and the brothers show up looking for food. Does he say right off the bat, hey, it's me, Joseph. How are you guys doing? No, he works this extended deception on them. He pretends to be an Egyptian. He pretends not to know them. He doesn't speak Hebrew around them. He pretends to think they're spies. He pretends to throw them in jail, which he actually does. He sends them home. He wants Benjamin to come. And then he pretends that Benjamin stole his cup and he brings them all back until Judah says, I need to protect this guy. And eventually Jacob reveals himself after deceiving them for months and months and months. And he says, I am Joseph and I forgive you. It's different than every other deception in Genesis. It's the deception where when the revelation comes, everyone's rescued instead of everything's ruined. And there's no judgment, there's forgiveness, and there's no anger, there's love. This is the inverted deception by the power of God. Do you see it? He took jealousy and he's going to use it for good. He's taken deception and he's turning it inside out to save the people of God. God is taking the fight to the enemy and he's using his own tactics to destroy him. Do you see it? Okay, Harry sees it. This is important. Third way. We're doing great. I've got one minute, 56 seconds left. God said, after he said, I'm going to put permanent war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I'm going to fight you and defeat you. I'm going to make you, um, I'm going to fill your life full of defeat and you're going to be ultimately defeated, serpent. And at the end he says, you shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so there's this prophecy that the one who will destroy the serpent will himself be hurt during the process. Right? And next, next week we're going to remember Good Friday where Jesus, is, Jesus was, Jesus who is the ultimate seed of the woman, the one who truly fulfills this prophecy from Genesis 3 about a seed of a woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And, and he really was bruised. And his heel was bruised by the nail that went through it on the cross, but his whole body just was, he just suffered. And so God is saying, I am going to allow or will or use the bruisings of people of faith in order to defeat the serpent. It's not a cost-free victory for anybody. It's not a pain-free victory for anybody. 
the bruisings are the way. That's, that's how you know you're following God. Your ankles hurt. Your feet hurt. Physically, sometimes. Spiritually, a lot of the time. Relationally, often. And God's people have had, a, had lots of bruisings in Genesis. Abraham had his like years of, of Sarah's barrenness, which was just a trial. And then after Isaac was born, he's told to go and sacrifice him on the mountain until it was stayed. And um, lots of infighting in Isaac's family. And there's just been lots of pain. And Joseph is told by God in his dreams, and everybody else too, that Joseph is going to be promoted to the highest places, promoted over his family, promoted over the food of the world. And later on in Genesis, Joseph actually says, God has made me Lord over Egypt. And Egypt was the superpower of the day. That was the the major nation. That's why everybody came to it. Whenever there's famines, Egypt always had food. Um, It's like being the president of the United States, but without a Senate or a Congress to slow you down. He's he's just God. And if Joseph wanted to, he could have anybody imprisoned, which he did, and he could call for pretty much anyone's execution, which he didn't. But Joseph is told by these dreams, I am going to exalt you to the highest place. But the way to get there is through bruisings. And the way to get there is to repeatedly have it look like his life is being ruined. Okay, In order for God's life for Joseph to be accomplished, it looks like his life has to be ruined a lot of times. When the brothers threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery, did that ruin Joseph's life? Yes. Did it fulfill God's plans for Joseph's life? Yes. When Potiphar's wife had the accusations against Joseph and he ended up in prison in Egypt, did that ruin Joseph's life? Yes. Did that absolutely fulfill God's purpose for Joseph's life? Yes. When Joseph interpreted the dream for the cupbearer and he got set free and forgot about Joseph for two years, did that ruin Joseph's life? Yes. But the fact that he only remembered after Pharaoh had these dreams he couldn't interpret, did that fulfill God's purpose for Joseph's life? Yes. Yes, he kept getting bruised and the bruising was moving him to where he needed to be. The bruising was the way. The pain is the way. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, the victory is through the bruised heels. That's the only way. That's the only way. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so what do we have to do about this? Number one, know this about yourself. The serpent is going to continue to want to bring you under his authority by getting you to be uh, discontent, jealous, and envious. That's how he brings people under his control. There's something in your life that you need that you don't have, and God's the problem, and other people need to die. Or get out of your way. Or get kicked out. Or get ignored. There's something in your life that you need. God isn't enough just on his own. Jesus isn't enough just on his own. The Holy Spirit isn't enough just on his own. And he doesn't have a good plan. There's something that you need. And if you need to disobey the word of God to get it, you you go right ahead. Because you need this thing. And if anybody, if any of them haters get in your way, you just walk on their faces. Welcome to the real world. This is how the battle works. Satan won with Eve. 
And he won with the brothers until God saved Joseph's life. He won with Cain. He wins, he wins, he wins. Every time we get discontent with our life, every time we give into envy and jealousy, looking at other people, that is the serpent saying, hey, follow me. I can fix this. Drink this hand, or eat this hand grenade. It'll be great. They don't call it a pineapple hand grenade for a reason. It's because it tastes like pineapple. Kaboom. So, so please know this. Can we all just know this? This is, this is the fight. This is going to be the fight forever. God, I see something I don't have. I'm so angry and I can't trust you. That's being snake bit. That's how the serpent works. And, and look at the story. You could have every single thing in the world except for being God. You could have eternal life. You could have awesome family. You could have perfect health. You could have kumquats on demand. We would throw that away to be envious. We would throw that away to find one fault with God. That's the human heart, apart from the rescue of Christ and the transformation of the Holy Spirit. So can we, can we do this? Let's not trust ourselves ever again. Do you want to be smart? Don't trust yourself. Don't, don't trust your heart. Okay. Amen? Amen? Good. Number two. Um, we'll just stick with two. We, we have to work on a theology of pain. We have to work on a theology of setbacks. We have to work on a theology of not getting what we want. We have to work on a theology of injuries. We have to work on a theology of just hurt. Um, because God is regularly going to be using that to make us who we are supposed to be and take us where we're supposed to go. Okay? Like Joseph's life. When, when Judas showed up and betrayed Jesus and the soldiers took him to be crucified, totally ruined his life, right? Or did they lead him exactly where he needed to go? Right? Okay, your problems, your history, your path, is it a series of people and events that have ruined your life or is it God taking you where you need to go? And if you're a man or a woman of faith, you say, these are bruises as God completes his purpose for my life. And I want to defeat Satan with my life. Or the other option, not so fun. Are our lives a series of setbacks and people who ruin our life? Failures in the family, failures in the finances, failures in other people. Are these setbacks that are ruining our life? Or are they God doing what needs to happen for us to fulfill the purpose of our life in Christ? There's, two, there's only two roads, right? One of them is really narrow. It's that narrow, that's the narrow road of going... It hurts, but it's probably really good, and I'm holding on to the promise of God. It's a letdown, but it's probably really good, and I'm holding on to the promises of God. It feels terrible, but it's probably really good, and I'm holding on to the will of God. Amen? Amen. And this is, a situ- this, is, this is old news. This is like 3,000-year-old stuff, but it's hard to learn. So let's praise and worship. Can we do that? Okay. Let's praise and worship. And this is, this, is, this is what I want to call us to this morning. I'm, I'm so stoked. Um, because Jesus is so good. 
He's leading us to the Resurrection Sunday where the worst thing that could possibly happen to have human beings gather around to kill God turned out to be the best thing that could possibly happen because through his shed blood we are completely forgiven of all our sins and because he's raised from the dead we have a friend and Lord and Savior who will never die and because he sent the Holy Spirit he is with us and lives in us forever so we're never alone or abandoned ever again. In order to see this Why don't we stand together and just during the worship, why don't we renounce jealousy? Why don't we renounce discontent and complaining? Why don't we just renounce the envy that's been robbing us? We can imagine a life so much better than the one we had. And God, I'm angry that you didn't give it to me. It's either Joseph's going in the pit or those thoughts are going in the pit. Amen? Either someone is going in the pit because of your life or the things that we don't like are going in the pit so that we can have true life. Amen? So why don't we stand and just give our hearts. If you need to repent, let's do it. God is ready today to completely forgive you. Amen? This is a church. This is not a guilt trip. Our good news is that God is ready today to completely forgive you and make the rest of your life different. You just turn your pen. God, I've been that person. I've just been complaining my whole life. God, I I repent. Let's do this. Renew my mind. Amen? Let's praise.